You washed up. Sorry? <laughs> Welcome to the island of discarded women, my friend. I used to be somebody. Are you that woman on the radio? Your island job is peladora de papas. Uh, sorry, what? Potato peeler. 87% match for uh, your skills. Okay, that's not... Anyway, what is the second best match then? Host of the island podcast. Are you kidding me? No, no, see, that's me. That That's perfect for me. Raising my savior Sherilyn Steele, everybody. So this episode is landing at the confluence of multiple anniversaries and observances. We just celebrated Memorial Day, and Father's Day is coming up. We observed the one-year anniversary of the George Floyd murder and the 100th of the Tulsa massacre. And honoring these anniversaries means we're remembering, right? Remembering those we've lost and those we love remembering the injustice that has ignited a movement and the shameful atrocity that is no longer a buried secret. To me, remembering means we're paying attention, and I don't ever want to stop doing that. Candace Barrett Burke brings us a story about two childhood certainties, and Gerilyn Steele, our special guest for the Zoomed conversation, shares family and joys and tragedies and ultimately decides to keep on singing. I recently turned 77, and part of my job now is to remember, for nostalgia, to be sure, and to pass on to the younger members of our family the memories that feel important, but mainly to explore some of the mysteries in my life, some of, some of what I never understood, so that I can travel onward a bit more lightly or perhaps more deeply. As a child, I remember two certainties. Number one, I never knew my father. Staff Sergeant Leslie Floyd Lampman Jr. was killed in World War II days after I was born. Apparently, he was flying extra flights over the English Channel so he could get home to be with his young wife and new child. I'm not just sure how I know that, family stories, possibly. I never remember my mother or anyone, really, speaking of him. I never knew his family until well into my adulthood, a wild story of odd synchronicities. War was never a topic in my childhood home, except the part when my sister and I discovered that my mother was probably a spy for the OSS. Another wild story. I never even saw a photo of my father until after my mother died. I was 41. Photos, documents, and other treasures, including two photos of my father, were found amongst my mother's things in a box marked Heart Happies. Childhood certainty number two, I never liked gold stars. I remember knowingly giving the wrong answer on a spelling test to get a red star instead of a gold star on my test paper. The word was truly. I added an E. I still tend to add that E until spell check erases my error. And I remember hiding my pal Benny's drumsticks in the cloakroom so that I would be punished by getting no star at all on my conduct report. 
gold star of accomplishment, even perfection, usually gave me an initial jolt of delight, but I knew to present my gold-starred self to my mother brought initial silence, then sadness, then perhaps a nod of approval, a deep breath, and finally some burst of caught in the throat. Good for you, Candy. That sequence sometimes took only a few seconds, but the initial silence is what I remember most. That was the part I couldn't bear. The silence that was too deep, too lonely, too grown up for my little girl self to penetrate or understand. It was this silence that made me long for a red star, please, or no star at all. I didn't know until seven years ago that these two vibrant childhood certainties were connected. I read in the Pioneer Press that there were, and indeed still are, something called service flags banners that hung in the front windows of the family of someone serving in the military. If the star at the center of the flag is blue, the person is in active service. If the star is gold, the service person has been killed in action. And there it was. Suddenly, I understood my mother's silence. What could have been more difficult? Your beloved husband is dead, and the child you shared with him presents to you with pride and delight a gold star, a symbol of her strength, and a reminder of his death. For a moment, the world collapses. You are, after all, a gold star widow. Your daughter is a gold-starred child. Silence is the only space that can hold both. Maybe her grief was so great that it would have overwhelmed me. But what if she had hugged me in that silence? What if she had told me stories of my father? What if I had been invited to share the loss? Seven-year-old me only knew that getting a gold star made my mom really sad. So gold stars were out. During Obama's last year in the White House, I applied and was accepted to be a part of a volunteer team to decorate the White House for Christmas. It would have been the 70th anniversary of my father's death, and I thought a good way to honor that would be to decorate the military tree in the White House. I spent a delicious week creating those decorations. We turned the entire White House into a Christmas wonderland, and on the military tree, I hung a gold star for Leslie Floyd Lampman and Marianne and Candy. At the end of the week, before welcoming in the public, Gold Star families were invited to a special ceremony and tour of the house. I was posted in the grand entrance to welcome the families. I wore my tiny Gold Star pin. Among the first to enter was a 50-ish couple from Colorado, I think. The woman spotted my pin, came over and asked, are you a gold star mother? No, I replied. I'm a gold star child. Her tears welled up. They were just boys, she said, and then just sobbed and held me and rocked me as if I were a little girl and said, sorry, I'm so sorry. It was the first time I remember anyone actually knowing and hearing and feeling my loss. This stranger, this mother. Her husband said rather formally, 
Our, uh, our son Connor was killed in Iraq in August. We knew the only place we could celebrate Christmas this year was here in the White House, this symbol of so much that we believe, this White House with other Gold Star families who understand our loss. Your dad, our son, they were just boys. They were just boys, and now they are just gold stars. War carries its burdens and glories, its responsibilities and honors, its wisdom and its deep scars, all ways that are still hard for me to completely penetrate or understand. But now I know, and I remember, and I am honored to walk with those families who are finding their own way through the despair and the silence, ways with which to engage in and savor this world and to hold the brilliance and hope in a gold star. This is my story. This is my song. Gerilyn Steele is music royalty here in the Twin Cities and beyond. Besides her own career, she sings with her award-winning family, the Steeles. She has performed with Prince in front of orchestras and was a frequent guest on the public radio show that I did, A Prairie Home Companion. For the past 22 years, Gerilyn has hosted a Sunday evening radio talk show for WCCO. She also does speaking engagements and benefits. And if that's not enough, she is currently finishing her master's at Luther Seminary. Gerilyn grew up in Gary, Indiana, and with her siblings, started singing for some notable music icons at a very young age. You're five years old, and you're opening for Mahalia Jackson. Yeah. So first, how did that happen? Which children were in the singing family at that point? Where were you, and what did you sing? Okay, go. I don't know who put that whole thing together. I was five years old. Okay. Yeah, so, right. uh, as you said, and so <laughs> it was funny because we had to wear these beautiful taffeta gowns and, you know, it was me, uh, my sister, Janice, my older sister, and um, my brother, JD and Fred. So JD's the oldest, then Fred, then Janice, then me. So the yeah. top four is what yeah. we like to call them. And then <laughs> Javita and Billy were later on. So they're the bottom two. Sure. <laughs> so we had a chance to open for Mahalia Jackson, as well as the Blind Boys, at a place in Gary, Indiana, called the Barbara Ruth Center. Wow. Very popular venue for a lot of the gospel artists to come through town. And she met my mom backstage. And my mother tells the story of how Mahalia Jackson grabbed Javita out of my mother's arms very gently. And she looked at my mom and said, you are so blessed to have all these babies and look at them, you know, but we were called the steel children back then. And I remember realizing she was a legend that she was really famous because of the response from the audience. And I just went, wow, who is she? You know, it was really beautiful. Wow. You talk about how your father who got you all singing, Mm-hmm. And he was very involved in the church and how he would take the family, take you kids to other churches and ask, could my children just sing one song? Did they ever say no? Absolutely. Oh, they would say no sometimes. <laughs> but, you know, my father would come right back. 
he just said, well, wait a minute, you guys, I'll be right back. And all of a sudden, you know, he comes out and go, okay, you're in. <laughs> so he had such a way about him that was uh, so familiar to people who have never met him. Just yeah. this beautiful personality, a quietness about him. But when he wanted his children to sing, he wanted the whole world to know that we could sing. And I'll never forget, um, most of the times they were churches, but every now and then they were different types of spaces. Yeah. And we'd go in there and he said, my children can sing, my children can sing, please let them sing. And they didn't know who you were, they'd only let you sing one song, but my dad could convince them to let us do two songs. So, Do you have any memory of what those songs were? Yeah, we used to do Two Wings. Two wings to veil my face. Boom, 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 boom. Two wings to fly away. We still do that song sometimes. Do you hear me? Yeah. I remember clearly that was yeah. one of the songs I we love sang it. all the time. We had so many gospel hymns that yeah. we would change. My brothers would always do arrangements of things. And then they started writing songs by the time JD was about. I would say nine, eight or nine. They started oh, really? arranging and JD would play the bass keys on the piano yeah. and Freya would play all the rest of them. And it was adorable and we'd have a oh, ball. So you mean, so they'd be doing like a four hands, well, like a three hands uh -huh. yeah. at the piano. Uh, yeah, really? Yeah. Yes. Seriously. And then you would be standing nearby or you yes, and Janice. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And then Billy and Javita, were they old enough to join you all at some point? Was ever no, Javita was born when I was five. So, okay. you know, she was just a little teeny yeah. one. And then Billy came right after that, like yeah. a year and a half later. Um, and so by the time we were singing more, they were too young yet. But she's yeah. a superstar. So when she did join the group, it was yeah. like, oh, my God, listen to that girl. You know, she was our Michael Jackson. Let's put it that way. And these right, two right, families right. were from Gary, Indiana. One right. lived on the east side. We lived on the west side. So there you go. Speaking of your father, you're, um, you're 14 years old and he dies in a car crash right in front of your house, killed by a drunk driver. I can't even imagine the heartbreak and the shock. What, what was that like for you all as a family? Oh, we'll never get over it. I will yeah. go to my grave with that pain. Um, mm -hmm he was standing outside of the car. My mother was parked in front of the house with my grandmother in the car with my father and he gets out to go get the other car. He decides to take the station wagon and let her keep the other car. And he is on his way to a big union meeting and um, he kisses my mother and he says to her, which she always would say to him, be careful, honey. But this time he said it to her, be careful, honey. And in a nanosecond, he was gone. And my mother got out the car um, dazed trying to figure out what happened and she kept looking for him she couldn't see him in front of the car behind the car on the grass so she just had to walk and he was hit so hard that he landed feet several feet away um, and I, I wish I could remember wow. uh, and he laid there the paramedics were there quickly and he, the last words I heard him speak I was standing outside because we were indoors Janice was babysitting me Javita and Billy and we were playing downstairs, having a ball, and we heard this huge boom. And so Janice runs up, and then we hear Janice screaming, and all the rest of us run up. And we realized it's our father laying in the street. And I ran outside, no shoes on, and I'm yeah. standing looking at him, weeping. I didn't have any words. And he looked, the, the uh, paramedic said, sir, which, 
hospital would you like to go to? There were two main hospitals in Gary, Indiana. Which one? And he said, it doesn't matter. He said, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Wow. So those were the last words I heard him speak. Yeah. My mother was close by as well. She heard it and you don't get over it. You just don't get over it. Um, The hardest part of it though, I must say, was after the funeral, um, my mother sat us down and she says, now this man who hit your father, who killed your father has eight children. All of these children are the same age as we are. And so all of the schools where we were, they went. Mm. So the youngest, Billy and Javita were in elementary school. They were there. I was in junior high school. They were there. My brothers were in high school. They were there. And my mother said, whatever you do, ask them how they're doing. It's not their fault. You can't blame it on them. They did nothing to make this happen. Mm -hmm. You have to forgive them. Mm -hmm. And she said to us, I have to forgive their father. Mm -hmm. And um, it was that that got us all through it. We kept hearing our mother's words in junior high school. I had to go over to them at the lunchroom and say, how are you guys doing? How is your mom? You know, and their father wasn't hurt at all. Yeah in this horrible accident. And to this day, that type of forgiveness is something I've been on a journey to make sure that I forgive those who hurt me and those that I love. So it was a lesson that had to be learned. I just wish it didn't have to be learned that way. Right. But what a gift to those children for your mother to, you know, to have the grace to say to you all, it's not their fault. Your father was such a champion of, of you singing. Not just so, us singing, so much more. Sure. How did losing him change that dynamics as far as you all as children continuing to sing? It changed everything. It literally changed everything. Uh, I was so angry. And I remember how my mother, she's so wise even today, but I would scream. I'd say to my mother, I just want to go outside and scream. And and she'd say to me, go outside and scream, baby. Just make sure you stop. Mm -hmm. Just make sure you stop. Mm -hmm. And I would come inside and I was so beaten down. It felt like my whole spirit was beaten down. And... um, I didn't want to sing anymore. There was a time where, you know, I was still singing in the choir at church, but there was a solo that people would love to hear me sing. And I just didn't want to sing it. Don't even ask me to sing it. I just didn't want to sing. Yeah. I didn't want to sing. And I still can't believe it because I love singing even today, but I'm so grateful that I got my joy back. Yeah. And a lot of that had to do with my mother and all of the words of wisdom. She would just constantly send these pearls of wisdom. You know, whether I'm going to bed or I'm getting up, getting dressed in the morning, she would just say something like, be kind today, Gerilyn. I know even if you're angry, you have to close your eyes and see your father alive. Mm. Just be kind. Mm. Be you. And it was hard. So my brothers went off to college and um, they had a hard time with my father's death. Um, we, We just weren't the same group of singers and we just weren't the same. Right. But um, a whole lot of joy came through, uh, even after all of that happened. Um, JD and Fred were at Purdue. My sister Janice was at 
um, Indiana State University and I didn't want to go to college. Oh. You know, my father, education was everything. He was always in school. My mother was working, um, finishing her high school degree when they first got married. And by the time he was killed, my mother was in college. Mm. And so for me not to want to go to college, that was a bad, bad idea. But I would constantly look to the heavens and scream at God and go, look what you did. What am I supposed to do now? Mm. And my mother would always say, you can always scream at God. You can always ask God questions. Just don't curse. (laughs) (laughs) Don't do that, baby. So I lost my joy to sing until I went to college and I started a gospel choir at Ball State University. First gospel choir on campus. Wow. And it changed everything. In 1978, you move here. You move to the Twin Cities. I did. And JD was already here. Yes. Right. And, and Fred, Fred. And Fred was already yeah. here too. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then in 1980, the three of you build as the JD Still Singers. Yes. Win the talent contest at the Minnesota State Fair. That's right. right. So you moved to Minnesota because, tell me, you tell me why. I moved to Minnesota because at Ball State University, I finished only two and a half years. I was in love and um, something happened that he, you know, he wronged me and I decided, you know what, I I need, I need another place to be. And and so I wanted to go to um, Atlanta and I called my mother and said, mom, I'm I'm not going to finish school here. I'm going to go look at some schools in Atlanta and I'm going to move there. And she says, Geraldine, please don't, please don't go to Atlanta. You have no family there. She says, go to Minnesota. You have your two brothers are there and they'll look after you. Would you please just go and save some money and then go to Atlanta? And I was like, oh, come on, mom, you know, but I told her I would. And I came here, got a job in two weeks at First National Bank in St. Paul. And I started to really like it here. And I met the guy I was going to marry really quickly after arriving here and we fell in love. And next thing I knew we got married in 1980. So as far as you and um, JD and Fred singing together, when you moved here, then that that sort of brought you back together. Oh yeah. And then JD decides I'm going to, I'm going to start a group called the JD's singers. JD Steel Singers, he <laughs> did. And you, let me tell you the reason he wanted to put his name on it, right? Because okay. we were like, you're crazy. We're not doing that. We're not putting your name on it. Because <laughs> it's our father's name, you know, JD Steel Senior. And we oh. all went, oh, okay. So we'll call ourselves the JD Steel Singers. That makes, you know, that makes sense. That makes so, sense. yeah. So in 1978, you know, we were singing. And then by the time we got to the state fair, that was JD because he wanted us to do a demo. So oh. it was me, Fred, JD, and Ginger Commodore. Oh, and Ginger Commodore. Okay. Yeah, Ginger okay. joined us by then. Yeah. And when we did the state fair, it was just one song, right, for the amateur contest, and you would win $500. And JD says we could take that $500 and do a demo. And so we just went along with it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and we won. We did you actually do, won. Did you do an original song? No, that, we did a song by the Hawkins singers. They're the ones that did a Oh Happy Day. Oh, sure. Yes. Okay, yes. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. <laughs> we decided to do a really difficult song. Um, and we 
loved it. We just had the best time, but we didn't think we'd win. I mean, there were incredible musicians and children that could tap dance and <laughs> flip and, and do, you know, use that baton at the same time, you know, yeah. so we didn't think we would ever win that, but we did our first try. We did. And sure enough, we went into the studio and started recording a demo. As the J.D. Steele singers. Yes, ma'am. I asked her if Minnesota felt welcoming. I'm from a chocolate city, Gary, Indiana. Um, everyone from the janitors to the mayor were black as I got older. And um, I, I don't remember ever having a white teacher. Oh. Ever. I went to a high school with 3,000 students, and there were three um, Hispanics uh, or, or Latinas in the school. And I did not know any white people, you know? Yeah. Uh, they were in the suburbs of, you know, around Gary, Indiana, there were. And so when you went to the mall, you would see them. But I never really interacted with anyone white. Yeah. So when I went, when I came to Minnesota, I felt two things. I was dropped in the frozen tundra. Because in May, there was still snow on the ground. I didn't sure. understand that. Right. And then secondly, I couldn't find the Black people. You had to go to the Black churches. Because as you know, most segregated day of the week is on Sunday. Mm -hmm. So you go to Black churches and you see Black people. And then they help you know, okay, there are house parties going on here. And there are clubs where people sing here. And all of a sudden, you go to these places and it's filled with Black people. You kind of go, wow, <laughs> okay, right? But it was only 5% of us. Um, so a lot of people would come from all over the country to Minnesota to work in various industries. And they would ask questions. You know, they'd meet me on a street somewhere and they'd say, so can you tell me where a Black barber is or, you know, where I can get my hair done? You know, it was very strange to come to a place like Minnesota. And was that okay? Or was it sort of like, yeah, I'm not going to stay here for very long. This is a little too weird for me. No, not initially. Um, I actually felt that I had the personality where I could be anywhere and be okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, to find the, the goodness of the people. You have to sometimes search a little bit, but it always comes through. I think every place has people that are good. Yeah. Um, so that's how I dealt with it. And I'll never forget, I started a friendship with a, a white girl at First National Bank okay. uh, in the same department I was in. And we just got along so beautifully until we didn't. She turned on me one day. I mean, she just turned on me. It's as though someone said to her, you can't be with that person. You cannot sit with her in the lunchroom. You, we, we don't need to see you around her. And she came to me and just said, you know, I'm done. We're not friends anymore. And I said, what did I do? She said, you didn't do anything. We just can't be friends anymore. It broke my heart. Wow. It broke my heart because I really thought that if you're just good people and yeah. you come to some understanding of who each of you are, yeah. and you can share your stories, that the, a friendship can grow in that. Yeah. But something happened. I don't know if her, I don't know, but something happened. And so, um, it was weird. Right after that, another a black woman in another department came to me and said, hey, let's go to lunch. And I said, OK. She said, hey, I've been wanting to tell you, I think you're my cousin. I think you're my third cousin. And I went, no way. And so we started looking at our lineage and trying to figure it out. And sure enough, she was Re my cousin. Really? Yeah, Sherry. And she and I would go to lunch every day. So immediately it felt as though the woman who walked out of my life, yeah. the one that walked in, was not just a friend, but family. So that wow. was a beautiful thing. I mean, yeah. Literally, literally and literally. figuratively. Mm -hmm. Yes. 
So that thing that strikes me about that story about the white coworker is I get moving to a place like you're moving to a place where you'd never interacted with the white people before. You'd never had friends or, or, or went to school or work with them or that kind of thing. I can see her having that you're her first black friend. I don't get that because I've never been around this black person. I'm not supposed to like them. Children aren't born that way. Right. So where does that come from and why and how can we stop it? But maybe that's a bigger conversation. Than today. <laughs> if you have any thoughts, let me know. Okay. Yeah. Well, it always starts with the parents or the guardians or whoever are raising the children, you know, um, they, they are born innocent and beautiful, but they are also born with personalities yeah. and um, they will hold on to what they feel is necessary to hold on to, especially when the parents or the guardians or family are trying to pour as much into them as possible. So hate can be poured in so easily yeah. and it actually goes down pretty quickly, you know, pretty easily. And there are people very comfortable with that drink of hate because they've only known that since right. the beginning. So it takes a whole lot more than a drink of love to fight that. It takes, you know, bowls and pots full of love. And it's only because love takes time. It's yeah. not that hate is better or it usurps love. Love just takes time because when it works, it works and it doesn't falter. And we were taught um, growing up, never be jealous of anyone. You are you and they are them. Yeah. So this thing of hate, I have experienced it, um, um, whether it was in, you know, Indianapolis or um, Terre Haute, which was uh, a Mecca for um, the white supremacists and the KKK, mm. you know, to drive, just to drive um, from Gary, Indiana to Florida. You know, we'd have to stop at a gas station and my father would say, don't move. And my parents would make these huge boxes of picnic baskets of um, chicken and whatever it was that we could eat, tuna sandwiches or whatever, and drinks. We could never go in and buy anything. And my father said, just don't move. If we had to relieve ourselves, we couldn't go to the bathroom at the diner. We couldn't go to the bathroom at the gas station. So I clearly remember when all of us had to pull over on the side of the roads. Mm -hmm. And in Indiana, of course, it's just farmland, you know, a lot of rural land. And we would wait. My father would find cactus because they were tall enough to hide us. Mm -hmm. And we would go into the cactus and relieve ourselves. Easy for the boys, not easy for the girls. Um, but that's what we had to do. And I remember asking my father why. Why can't we use the toilet here? Geraldine, mm -hmm. you will learn why. Just listen to me. You cannot go in. And I still get pretty ticked off when I think of that experience or yeah. those experiences. Um, and, and when you could stop and go into a deli uh, or someplace to eat because they were more uh, liberal, you know, they were more giving and forgiving. You know, you could go in and buy it, but you couldn't sit down. Wow. You know? And that was just weird. It was weird. So a lot of people, you know, in my life have looked at me, especially some of the younger friends I have, and they'll look at me and say, you went through that? And I keep saying to people, this was not that long ago. Yeah, right. That's it. We've had this really volatile year. Besides the pandemic, we have the trauma and the rage uh, with the George Floyd murder and then subsequently uh, the Derek Chauvin trial 
bringing up all the trauma all over again, over and over and over, again. over and over again. And as the trial is still going on, 20 year old Dante Wright is slain by a police officer in Brooklyn center. The night of that he was killed, you're doing your live WCCO radio show. And at that point, the information was still coming in and the body cam footage had not been seen yet, but the protests were already starting. And you had a very honest reaction. I'm quoting you here. You said, what have we done that is so egregious to this country? Why are we being hunted? Talk to me more about your reaction that night. Um, I had all these things I was going to talk about that were fun and funny to end the night. I like to end the night out of my four hours with something funny and positive so people can rest well. But that night, it just couldn't happen. My boss wrote to me and said, hey, we got to cover this. I hadn't heard about it. I hadn't read anything about it. And I started reading immediately when I came on and I'm trying to catch up on the story. Um, And my initial response in, inside of me, my body reacted to it. I felt sick at the stomach. Um, I didn't think I could get through it. And I have a son who is black and I have a daughter who is black and I have three grandchildren who are black. And I realized in that moment, we are being hunted. We are yeah. being hunted. Yeah. And what is it? Now we were brought here, Africans were brought here to do this horrible thing as slaves, right? Just to build and, you know, they brought some of the best from Africa, from the continent. They brought designers and builders and, you know, you name it. And you brought them here. And all that happened was in your plate, right? It was in the plate of the white man, the white slave owner. This is what you chose to do. Yeah. You chose to rape the women. You chose to have babies by the women. You, I mean, we could go on and on. And then it can, we are finally freed. Emancipation has happened. And yes, it is a slow walk, but we get there. Yeah. Then there's the, you know, the migration north. And all of a sudden, you realize that today, you know, out of all of the years this has been going on, you realize it hasn't changed. There is as much hate, if not more, Mm -hmm. today. And now you have the option with technology to spread that hate in a nanosecond and grab onto all those who hate with you. So this is what I'm thinking, is that how do you stop this? Because technology adds to the problem and or it adds to the solution. Yeah. True. It can do that too. Yes. It can do that too. As far as like Darnella Frazier's video. Mm -hmm. Powerful. Mm -hmm. If someone can look me in my eye and just go, I hate you because what would they say? No one has ever said to me, I hate you because. Yeah. Right. Right. You're practicing your hate. You're, you're using your hate. You're making sure that you want to get rid of our race of people for whatever reason. Right. Right. But no one has looked me in my face and say, well, I hate you because. No, you're right. Because there is no answer. There is nothing to say. They'd be like, well, just because. Or maybe they're embarrassed to say it. But we are right back. You know, it's almost like history is repeating itself today. Yeah. Right. We're right back 
those 60 years with Dr. King and, you know, 60 years ago. And, and of course, 40 years after that, you've got Barack Obama put in place right. and you just kind of go, whoa, right? I know. Are we post-racial? Remember that? Oh, you guys have yeah. Barack Obama. There's no racism. No. It's like, oh my God, <laughs> <laughs> who says that? It's uh, maddening. And so um, the whole thing of hunting, because I don't know anyone in my circle, within my circle of benevolence, who has not experienced being pulled over by the police and mistreated. Yeah. I was one of them. My mother was one of them. My mother had a cop pull a gun on her when she was like 65 because wow. she was going to my sister's house to turn off the alarm. She was on the list and they yeah. came up and put it so close to her. If they had tripped over a stone, she would have been killed. Why did they pull her over with a gun? They thought because the siren was going off oh. and my mother was walking up to the house. Yeah. She had a key and they thought she was breaking in. But here's the thing. The neighbor on the corner who knows all of us, white woman, my mother said to her, why aren't you telling them who I am? The owner's mother is standing here. Why won't you tell them who I am? And she looked at the, the neighbor, looked at the cop and she says, well, she doesn't even look like a, you know, someone who's breaking in. She doesn't look like a burglar. She never told them wow. who my mother was. And this is a woman my mother's had talks with. We would always speak to her. She seemed so kind, but she would not speak up for my mother. Yeah. On that same show, you talked about being pulled over and handcuffed. I had, I had actually spoken on my radio show just a couple of months or maybe six weeks before this incident. And I was talking about the police and how disappointed I was and how did they get away with this? How come none of them ever go to prison? I could just sell a bag of weed for $10 and I'm in jail for 25 years, yeah. you know? Uh, I didn't understand that. Yeah. And I wondered, you know, because here I was in Mendota Heights when they pulled me over. My son was going to school in Mendota Heights. And and I kept thinking, was he one of the ones listening to me that night and got ticked off and decided, you know, I'll pull oh, her over? You know, yeah. what was what made him do it? Yeah. And to put me, you know, in the car and, and take me to Dakota County Jail. And they never booked me, but they put me in a cell for four hours. Wow. You know, by myself, no information coming from anyone. I had one phone call and called my sister and they wouldn't let her bail me out till I had sat there for many hours. So wow. after a while, you started to go, OK, that wasn't a misunderstanding. Wow. No. So when this whole thing happened with Dante, right, um, I was so angry that night, yeah. so hurt that night because it's just no one seems to want to do anything about it. So the Chauvin trial was everything in this country. It was everything. That moment, that, that whole time, that as we were watching and listening and trying to understand it all, yep. we waited with bated yep. breath. Yep. What will they decide to do? What will be the verdict? And I was sitting at a, um, a stoplight on Central and Broadway. Um, and I remember waiting for them to call it and they said the judge has come in and he's about to make the you know and i'm thinking okay i'm expecting it not to be yeah. guilty maybe guilty on one maybe yeah but when they announced all three were guilty i just covered my mouth yeah i covered my mouth because i was afraid someone would hear me uh -huh. someone would would hear me screaming. I got every window up in the car and I'm just screaming and weeping. Yeah. 
and everything, all of the emotions, it's like everything, all of it, Gary, Minnesota, all of it came out Wow! in that moment. Yeah. And I'm trying to control myself and now I have to drive. Yeah. And it was so frustrating, Sue. No one was in the car with me. There was no one around me I could turn to get a hug or to say, oh my God, we could scream together. Yeah. And I finally get to Speedway gas station up yeah. the road and I'm still crying and holding my mouth. And I get out and there's this thick white woman, thick like me. And she looks at me and says, how are you doing? And she said, I just finished screaming for a while. And I just couldn't believe she turned and said that to me. Yeah. She said, finally, it's done. It's done. And I'm so sorry. She just kept saying to me, I'm so sorry. And I wanted to run into her arms. A woman I've never met, this white woman who cared. And it was as though I was placed in the midst of an angel. Yep. Because yep. I needed to stop crying. I needed to stop screaming. And there she was. And I don't know her name. I wish I had asked her name. Those are the type of moments yep. that keep us alive, whether you're yep. white, black, or otherwise. Yep. It keeps you going. So whoever she was, I hope she hears this podcast and knows how much I appreciate it. The black girl going into Speedway, getting out the car. She was ahead of me. And there she stood. How you doing? This little light of mine I'm gonna let it shine This little light of mine I'm gonna let it shine This little light of mine I'm gonna let it shine Let it shine Let it shine Let it shine In 2011, in her early 50s, Gerilyn went back to college and finished her undergraduate degree at Concordia in St. Paul. So was reinvention or remaking herself the motivation to go back to school? Or was it just about completing a dream? The latter of the two. Absolutely the okay. latter of the two. Um, I had promised my mother that I would finish. Okay. And I remember in 2009 when I decided to start the degree to finish my undergrad and, and I graduated in 2011, I, I knew then that I had to keep going because my family on both sides, um, especially my father's side, are what you call lifelong learners. Yeah. And so I knew I just had to keep going. My sister Janice had gotten her undergrad degree and she had also uh, accomplished a, a master's in divinity. And so, you know, she would call me up and say, Jolene, you can do this. You can finish your undergrad. Just keep going. Just keep going. And so I did. And when yeah. I graduated, I wept. I came to Prairie Home that night after you did. my graduation In your with cap my cap on. Yeah. <laughs> and I have promised the audience. I have promised Garrison. I am coming. If I work for you that night, I'm coming. Yeah. I had to leave my family at dinner. Sure. They were like, you're leaving? I'm like, I have 
to go make the announcement. These people have <laughs> been praying for me, asking me how far have I come. So yeah, I couldn't wait. And when I walked out, the audience exploded. I'm crying and I'm like, I did it. And then all of a sudden about probably six months after that, my sister Janice calls. Yeah, so you're going to start a master's degree? And I'm like, are you nuts? <laughs> you know, we just keep going, Geraldine. That's what we do. We keep going. You're going to do it, right? I'm like, no. She stayed on me week after week after wow. week, Sue. Wow. And finally, I said, you know what? I think I am going to do it. And I went to St. Kate's and started my master's degree. So how about that? And then, and the, then their friend suggested seminary, that that might be a yeah. good fit for you. Tell me about that. It was Janice once again. She had a friend in town that was visiting. And she said to me, hey, why don't you come and have dinner with us? A friend of mine is here in town and she'd love to meet you. And I said, oh, okay, I can come tonight. Janice had come here and taken a pastorship at that time. So it was really great to have her in town. And I'm sitting at the dining room table and I'm looking at this woman. I've never met her before. And I knew most of Janice's friends. And all of a sudden she looks at me and says, I hear that you are looking to go back to school and finish your master's degree because I hadn't finished. Yeah. And I said, well, yes, I am. She goes, I know exactly where you should go. Luther Seminary. And I went, what? Seminary? Oh, no, no, no. That's not for me. No, thank you. And she says, do you want to finish your master's? Right? I said, I do want to finish my master's, but not at seminary. So then after weeks of thinking about that, I decided to call one seminary, a different, totally different seminary to see what their program was like. And I went there and met with all these people and I cried all the way home. Because I kept thinking, I'm not built or meant to be in seminary. What is this? God, what is this? And finally, I went to the school that she said um, I should check into. And I checked it out, looked at it online. And I kept going, oh, my God, people are going to think I'm going to be a pastor. And, you know, I know my gifts, right? I know what I'm supposed to do. I know why I'm here. I know my purpose. And that wasn't it. (laughs) (laughs) So you thought. Yeah, so I thought. And Janice talked me into it. And she said her friend had called her and said, hey, did Geraldine apply? And she said, did you you do it? And I said, no, I haven't done it. She goes, do it now. And I closed the computer and I just sat here crying, thinking, what am I doing? Why am I, what am I doing? But I opened it up again and I applied and I had to write my paper six times in my own head yeah. to get my, my uh, you know, essay done. And there was someone that called me from admissions. There's a message he left, Geraldine Steele, this is Bill so-and-so from Luther Seminary and I have some news that I'd like to share with you. Please give me a call back. And I'm going, oh my God, who calls you to tell you you didn't get in or something, yeah, right? right? True. And yeah. finally I call him back and he goes, well, Miss Steele, we are so excited that you are now a student at Luther Seminary. Wow. And I am telling you, I screamed and cried and I went, okay, God, yeah. this must be meant to be. Yeah. Uh, your compassion, your charm, your wit, the experience that you bring, the sense of joy, the sense of love, your voice, what a gift to a church. I'm just, I'm just putting that out there. That's beautiful, Sue. Thank you. I would come. You would? Ooh, if it happens, girl, I'm calling, going, where, you, where are you? I'll be there. I'm terrified of it. Absolutely yeah. terrified. So everyone that says, I hear that you're in seminary. Yes, but I'm not, you know, stole robe. No, <laughs> I, you know, I say that before I even think about it. And someone walked up to me one day and said, but what if you are meant to do that? Yeah. I said, don't you think I would have heard that by now? Don't you think I would have felt that or seen that or, you know, 
you know, if, if Gabriel had to come down and talk to Joseph about Mary, some, yeah. you know, some angel's going you know, to come. Gabriel's on me. his way. There's time. <laughs> <No>. There's time <laughs> for a Gabriel visit. Many of them. All I'm saying is you'd be a gift to a congregation. It's very kind of you. We work together on a program companion. Yes, we do. Frequently. Shared a dressing room frequently. <laughs> and, um, okay, I did the funny voices, yada, yada, yada. You, sometimes just you, and then later uh, with Javita, would blow the roof off whatever venue we're in. <laughs> so I have to talk about the very, very memorable show, Baltimore, October 2007. Yes, yes. Oh, my and God. Carol King is one of the featured guests on the show and you guys sing natural woman and it's interesting when when the song was sort of set up it was like Geraldine Steele's gonna sing back up right and carol keys at the piano that's not what happened it became very much of a shared mutual experience and watching from the wings to see her there at the piano singing that song with you and it was just it was uh, definitely one of the highlights of my 24 years on that show on so many so many levels and then you come off stage and you're sort of just shaking and the audience is going nuts and we're backstage and we're hugging and high-fiving and all this kind of stuff and first thing out of your mouth you say oh i wish my brother jd had seen this oh. It was the first thing out of your mouth. And I remember saying, well, he can listen. And you're like, oh, right. Yeah, he, right. He, he can listen. He can listen. Did JD become your champion in all of your life? But as far as your singing life? Well, JD was the one. Uh, I, I tell people JD is the reason we sing the steals. We, you know, our family, as a family group, we just stopped singing after my father was killed. We all went our different directions. And um, you know, it was like I said, at Ball State when I found my voice again. Well, when I came to Minnesota, J.D. immediately said to me, hey, you guys, we're going to start our family group again. And it's just Fred, J.D. and me. And I'm like, what? Really? Yeah, yeah we're going to start it again. I'm just going to do it. He had us booked at a church to sing at and, and uh, immediately. And that was within before even two weeks passed. I was singing again with my family and. Mm -hmm. It was so much fun rehearsing together and being with each other. And through the years, through the decades, I could point out each point of uh, re-entrance with J.D. where he uh, stood again tall and decided we're going to go this direction. Yeah. And then, of course, we'll go a certain direction. And then all of a sudden, some big thing is a possibility. And he once again comes in and takes charge and says, we're going to do this. Yeah. And I remember how... I thought to myself, the reason I keep singing is because of JD. I yeah. really had no interest in that at all. Um, I just wanted to go and get a degree someplace, finish it, and go get a, you know, start a career in whatever, special education or whatever it was. But it was JD that kept saying, no, you guys, let's go take this job, let's go sing. Yeah. And so even today, even today, JD is the one who will say, hey, you guys, we have an opportunity, and I think we should take it. Yeah. You know, so that's why I think of him that way. I know, I know, because so how was that for you singing with Carol King that night, that song 
I was at first terrified. I mean, when, when Garrison said, you know, uh, yeah, I think you guys are going to do this duet together. And I was like, oh, my God. I mean, I was so excited. First of all, she was this beautiful woman. Yeah. Just I had the sweetest spirit. I mean, there was something so calming about her. If you walked into that stage oh. and you had a problem, it was gone because Carol King was in the space. Um, and so she calmed me immediately. Immediately she arrested any of my fears. Yeah. And I just thought, okay, I can do this. I have to do this. This is Carol King. And the first thing I said to myself, whatever you do, Geraldine, do not oversing it. I said that to myself Oh yeah. because I knew that album. Well, yeah. I knew her version, you know, she yeah. was the one that sang it initially. Right. And so I was used to the Aretha version, but I knew her version and yeah. I just went follow her stick with where she's going. And that's what I decided to do. And it was beautiful. Final thoughts from me. First, I'm remembering a year ago when the former guy in the White House insisted on holding a rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma, at the same time as the 99th anniversary of the Tulsa massacre. Remember that? Now, with racial tensions already high with the George Floyd murder, the timing seemed completely tone deaf. Of course, the first reaction for most of us, including those who grew up in Tulsa, was, the 99th anniversary of the what massacre? So maybe this rally that was not safe to hold during a pandemic and that no one came to anyway because all of the tickets were bought up by TikTok followers of BTS, maybe it ultimately did some good by bringing this unimaginable atrocity out of the shadows, finally. Watching the documentaries of the massacre on the 100th anniversary, I was struck by one photo in particular. The entire Greenwood neighborhood had been flattened by firebombs. Nothing remained for miles. And in this photo, we see a canvas tent on a charred lot that used to hold a lovely home on a tree-lined street. The narrator telling us that some families, having lost everything except the clothes on their backs, were determined to live on their property their homes were gone, their businesses and customers had been obliterated, but they owned this lot. This was theirs. They weren't leaving. I don't know how long a family could live in a tent in 1921 or any time, really. Most were unable to rebuild because insurance companies weren't accepting claims for a riot, as this was wrongly named, and bank loans from white banks weren't happening. When folks say that those who have nothing just need to try harder, I wonder if they've ever moved their family into a tent after a white mob has destroyed everything they own simply and only because they are black. In the photo with the tent, I see pride and conviction, which in the face of this horrific racial tragedy is mind-blowing. 
Tom Hanks nails it in his recent New York Times opinion. He wonders how different perspectives might be now had we all been taught about the Tulsa massacre in as early as the fifth grade. Passing legislation to put these stories back into their unmarked graves is shameful. Come on, white people. We have a chance here. Let's be better than this. Okay, second thought. I want to add graduations to this confluence of observances. Because last month, the youngest member of our island family, Sing Yang, Day, as she prefers, graduated from Augsburg University in Minneapolis. Now, it was a virtual ceremony, but it's still a graduation. Day has been an amazing member of our cast from the beginning. Her willingness to bear her heart in her writing and her fearlessness and adorable comic timing on stage have been such gifts to this podcast and to me. I'm singling her out right now because this is a milestone. So congratulations, Day, and please remember, WW shush, when women show up, shit happens. Thank you, thank you, Gerilyn, for sharing your music and your family and your heart with us. And thank you, Candace, for your beautiful piece that reminds us to remember. Thank you to Brian for your music transitions and Tony for your mastering mojo. Hannah and Ashton, thank you always for your assistance. We are getting vaccinated, and I so appreciate all of you doing that, too. We're hoping that this fall we can resume recording our episodes live in front of an eating and drinking audience. In the meantime, we'll continue producing these from home episodes. Now, throughout the pandemic, we have asked for your support to help pay our creative team, and you have stepped up big time. Thank you, thank you to all of you who have donated to date, and I want to send a special thank you to our new donors who have given since the release of our last episode. Virginia M., Sarah M., Terry E., Janet B., and Amy C. If you would like to chip in, you can donate any amount at our website, islandofdiscardedwomen.com. All donors get a 20% discount from Flip'em the Bird. When you don't have the words, let your gloves say it for you. Shop their fingerless gloves and t-shirts at flipemthebird.com. Okay, we'll be back soon with another episode of Island of Discarded Women. Thank you, everybody. I'm Sue Scott. Angels descending Bring from above Echoes of mercy Whispers of love